Let's start just by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for your word. Your word spoke. We, we use our words to do things, to make things happen. We speak and information gets transferred. You, you use your words to bring life to everything and to sustain all things. Father, your words spun galaxies into existence. Galaxies that we are now seeing for the first time uh, in Western society, and the things that we are seeing are blowing our minds in categories. Things once thought established uh, are being, uh, in science, are just being blown apart, shaken to the core. And uh, Lord, you're laughing because you knew it all along. And uh, I just thank you that you are um, our, God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. You are an eternal God, God of wonder beyond our galaxy. And we just praise you for who you are. And I thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning we are wrapping up 1 Corinthians 15. Now we've got chapter 16, which will be short, and then we'll be in the book of Acts going into the fall. First Corinthians 15, as you may remember, the book of Corinthians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church, and it's about ten different topics. Some of the things he writes are to address things he's caught wind of that are happening there, and then in chapter 7, there's a shift, and he addresses some of the things that they have asked him questions about. Ten topics, and the last one seems to be... Uh, something he's caught wind of, not something they've written him about. He's caught wind that there's teachers in their midst that are saying that grandma and grandpa who have passed away in Christ, maybe somebody that got martyred for Christ, they've fallen asleep in Christ, he says, yeah, they're gone, they ain't coming back. They're not going to be raised from the dead. There's no resurrection. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 to say, uh, that's a big deal, guys. Because if... There is no resurrection, then Jesus was not raised. You take the good news out of the gospel if Jesus is not raised. And you say that the apostles are liars because everything we've preached is that Jesus is raised. So if he wasn't raised, then we're a bunch of liars. And Christianity becomes a tragically misguided endeavor. So the whole chapter has been Paul's attempt to pull out all the stops. He comes at this issue from multiple different angles to explain Jesus really beat death by rising from the dead. And that one day he really will raise dead bodies from their graves. But what we looked at last week is Paul explained that our future resurrection bodies will not be made of the same exact substance as our current bodies, which are subject to injury and death. And he gets into that a little bit here in the last eight verses of the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, as well as some other key details about the resurrection. So I'll read these verses now. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. 
I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. <clears throat> so, what we're going to see in these verses this morning as we work through them is that Paul is making a claim that is a bit mysterious. Human flesh and blood what we are made of right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the, the rule, the reign of God that he is in the process of establishing all over the world through the risen Christ, as people come to faith in him, the rule and reign of God that's going to be global and final and complete when Jesus appears again, that rule and reign cannot be inherited Possessed, taken part of by perishable bodies of blood and flesh. And that's a bit of a mystery. It's kind of mysterious. Wait, you're saying that there's a substance that we're going to be made of that's different than this substance? And so Paul is going to explain it. We must be changed to inherit the eternal and perishable kingdom of God. Just like a fish can't live outside of water, just like an eight-week-old baby cannot live outside its mother's womb, so these bodies that we have cannot live in the environment of God's new creation that's going to be brought about with the return of Christ. We must be changed to live in that world. And everything Paul says up till verse 58 is going to explain that change a little bit more. When will we be changed? What will that change be like? What will be the final results of that change? And then in verse 58, the word therefore starts it off. It's his conclusion. Verse 58 is actually reaches all the way back to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15. And verse 58 is his conclusion to the whole thing. All 58 verses. He reaches back everything that he said and builds up and he concludes in verse 58. Therefore, so we'll look at that at the very end. So three things that we'll see. First, this mysterious claim in verse 50. He says it two ways there about flesh and blood. And then second, he'll explain it in verses 51 to 57. And then third, he gives his final call. And here's the main idea. The main thing this is all about. And again, this is on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to look at it. Because Jesus will clothe our mortal bodies with immortal life, 
We ought to live our lives controlled by this resurrection hope. Because Jesus will clothe these mortal bodies with immortal, undying life, we ought to live our lives now controlled by that resurrection hope. So, verse 50 and point one, the mysterious claim, flesh and blood, Paul says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor, verse 50, does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here he says the same thing two different ways. The flesh and blood can't inherit God's kingdom. Things that are perishable, things that die, can't last long enough to inherit things that are undying, imperishable. Something that perishes is something that dies, right? Something that is imperishable is something that does not die. It lasts for forever. And we know because of thousands and thousands and thousands of years of experience and rock layers where you can dig things up, things made of flesh and blood die. They always do. Flesh and blood is perishable. You can find, um, you know, even in the strata of the rocks, you, know, you have uh, fossils showing things die in this world. This is a world of death and decay. Flesh and blood um, would not last in the future world that God is creating. Something has to happen to reconstitute these dying bodies so that they are undying and able to inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to think about it like this. Imagine someday I'm, I'm 90 years old um, and I'm living in a nursing home. Um, my body is falling apart and I need help to get to my chair each day. And imagine I get a letter in the mail saying, I've got great news. I've inherited, I know my ancestors are somewhere in Europe, right? They're, I'm, I'm a mixed breed, a mutt of all kinds of English and Irish and stuff. But let's just say I get this crazy letter and I've inherited a massive family estate in England that I never even knew existed. Turns out, I own a castle, and I've inherited billions of dollars left to me. Now, of course, it sounds like a scam, right? But imagine this is a true letter, okay? And I read the letter. Actually, I can't read the letter. It's read to me. And I think, so what? This flesh and blood that's falling apart here, that I can't even get out of bed on my own, I can't inherit this kingdom in England. I can't enjoy that, an imperishable, undying, unfading inheritance that the Bible talks about is similar. It will do us no good if we are fading away and perishing. You can't enjoy it if you're falling apart. So the mysterious claim that Paul makes is pretty obvious. Flesh and blood, de decay, can't inherit a kingdom of God that never decays. Something's got to give. Something has to change. And Paul reveals that in our second point this morning. He says, I tell you a great mystery. And so because he's telling it, it's not a mystery anymore. It's a mysterious thing because we've not seen this. This is not something that we have lots of knowledge about other than Jesus' resurrection. So point two, 
He explains the mystery, we must be changed to inherit the kingdom. Verse 51. I tell you a mystery. So now it's not a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, not everyone's going to die. There will be millions of people who are still alive when Christ returns. But still, we will all be changed. In other words, the people who are dead will not be the only ones getting reconstruction surgery when Jesus shows up. We will all be transformed and changed. And now he gets into a few details about this change. He's going to answer a few questions about it. People might be asking, when is this going to change happen? Well, Paul says it's not going to be a long, drawn-out process. It, it's going to be in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. It will be instantaneous. And he goes on, it will be at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This idea that change, that something happens with the blow of a trumpet, is all through the Old Testament, in different places, talking about God showing up on the day of the Lord. God shows up often with a trumpet blast, and things happen. For example, when the Israelites were standing at Mount Sinai, getting ready to meet God, they were supposed to go up to the mountain when they heard the trumpet blast from heaven, and it sounded louder and louder, summoning them and Paul says here there will be a trumpet blast, a last trumpet blast. No more will be needed from heaven because heaven and earth will be one after this last trumpet blast. And when it sounds, instantly the dead are raised, everyone changed in an instant. And then Paul explains a little more about what this change will be like. He uses an illustration. What's it going to be like? Well, it'll be like putting on a new set of clothes. Putting on a new clothing. For the perishable, he says, must clothe. Verse 53. See that? Clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. If you go to space and you want to live, you better clothe yourself with something if you get outside of the spaceship, right? A space suit. If you enter the new creation, this imperishable, undying, new reality that God is going to make, out of the ashes of the old, what do you need? Well, you're going to need a imperishable suit, body. This is a metaphor, a picture. And this is what Paul taps into. We need resurrection bodies to be a part of the resurrection world. And then, what will our final state as transformed, resurrected human beings be? Well, we will have victorious, eternal life through Jesus. Verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in these verses, what Paul is doing, he's relying on his Bible, his Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and he quotes two Old Testament texts. Paul knew both Greek and Hebrew. He had a Hebrew copy of his Bible. But he was preaching and teaching mostly to Greek people. People that spoke Greek. So 
Rather than always making new translations himself, Paul would use the Greek translation somebody else made. Um, just like, you know, modern Hebrew scholars, they may be able to read Hebrew, but they'll, they'll use an English translation um, in, in church and for their personal devotions many times. And so that's what Paul did. He knew Hebrew, but he read his Greek Bible because he was preaching to Greek people. So he, he quotes a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The reason I bring that up is because the Greek translates the Hebrew not super literally here. So it, if you're reading in your Hebrew Old Testament some of the passages he quotes, you'd be like, wait, what Paul says is a little different. Well, that's because he's using a different translation. Kind of like when we look at our PowerPoint, we're like, hey, that's a little different than mine. Ah, it's a different translation. It's, it's, it's not as word for word as uh, maybe the, a different translation might be. So Paul's relying on a translation, and he quotes from Isaiah 25, verse 8. And Isaiah, you don't have to go there, but Isaiah 25 is a big resurrection passage where God is going to defeat death forever. On one, on a future day when the whole earth is going to become God's holy mountain in Isaiah 25. The picture is that the Garden of Eden, which is described in Scripture as being on a mountain, the Garden of Eden, the place of God's presence with man, in Isaiah 25, has now gone global. And on this big mountain of God that fills the whole earth, this is a picture. It's not saying the new creation is a mountain. It's a picture. You go on mountains, and they're high, and you meet heaven. It's, it's a symbol of being close to God, being in his presence. And on this mountain, on this new restored Eden, God's going to destroy death in Isaiah. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 25, verse on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. That's a, a burial shroud that covers the nations of the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. See, see that in verse 8? He will swallow up death forever. The Hebrew literally reads forever there. But Paul's translation that he's quoting from translates it a little more loosely and says, in victory. He's going to swallow up death in victory, which is like, well, how's that similar? Well, the, the idea is that God's going to get the victory over death forever. Okay? So it's an interpretive move that the translators made, and Paul's saying he's going to beat death in victory. Forever. He's going to swallow it up, and it's not going to come back out again. Death will be done forever. That's a victory. And then what Paul does next is, is kind of clever, actually. He uses the language of a passage found in the writings of the prophet Hosea. So he's in both prophets here. Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14. The very end of Hosea's letter, or writing. And he uses this passage, this verse from Hosea, in a, in a bit of an ironic way, to mock the powerlessness of death in the light of Christ's coming. So in Hosea 13, verse 14, in context, God is asking a question. Now, the NIV, it's, it's a little complicated, but stick with me. The NIV, if you're reading the NIV translation, it actually doesn't show this as a question in Hosea. So if you're reading NIV and you're reading Hosea 13, verse 14, it doesn't show it as a question. That's because, unfortunately, there's no question marks in Hebrew. And only the context will show you whether it's a question mark or not. Um, but if you look at all, most of the other Bible translations, they have Hosea 13, verse 14 as a question. 
And I think they're right. I think the NIV missed, missed the boat there. I think it, there should be a question mark there. Um, in Hosea 13, verse 14, God's asking a question. He says, shall I ransom them? Shall I rescue Israel from the power of Sheol, the grave? Shall, shall I redeem them from death? Should, should, I, should I fix their problem? Death is coming for them. They're in big trouble. Their enemies are coming because they've rebelled against me in context in Hosea. Shall I rescue them? Shall I help them? In context, the answer to God's question is no. He's not going to help them. Not in that generation. They're being judged for their sins. And so what God does in this verse in Hosea, in the second half of verse 14, he summons death. He's, he says, again, reading from, uh, I'll read the New American Standard Bible. He says, O death, where are your thorns? O shield, O the grave, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. It's a pretty bleak verse, actually. Death is coming for you. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to show you compassion this time, Israel. You, you finally... Reach the last straw. All your last chances are out. Israel, as a nation, you've rebelled against me. Babylon and Assyria, the enemies are coming against you. I'm not going to step in. And he says, where, O oh grave, is your thorns? Where, O oh death, is your, your sting? Bring it on. It's coming. It's coming for you. Death, do your work. That's a very sobering passage in Hosea. But what Paul does is he reads this passage in Hosea that's pretty bleak, and he reads it through Jesus' come now glasses. And he says, now, because of Jesus' coming, God has shown compassion and forgiveness. Hosea 13, 14 wasn't the end of the story. It was mid-story. God has shown compassion. You can see that in Hosea. Lots of places, just not in verse 14. Okay, but there is more to the story. All right, there's lots more to the story in Hosea, just not in verse 14. It's, it's mid sentence there. But Paul pulls the words of verse 14 out of Hosea, and he actually uses those words to mock death. Now that God has shown compassion through Christ, and now that God has ransomed his people from the power of the grave, this original question, where of death is your victory? Where of death is your sting? It, where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, grave is your sting. Bring, bring on death. Come, come on and, and um, do your work to Israel. They deserve your judgment. Now it's ironic. Where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, grave is your sting. Oh, it's gone. Because Jesus defeated it. Somebody rose from the grave. An Israelite rose from the grave. He just took the teeth right out of verse 14. So now Paul uses it, and it is a taunt. He's mocking death. Where is it? It's broken, because Jesus broke it. Now, before he erupts in thanksgiving to God for this great victory, in verse 57, verse 56, he writes this. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What does he mean by that? We don't have time here to go into deep detail, um, but there's basically three realities that the apostle is talking to us about here. Death, sin, and law. 
all three, see them in verse 56? Death, the reality of death. What is death? The reality of sin and the reality of the law. And all three of those things are very closely related. And they show up in the Bible in the very beginning story of the Bible. In Genesis 1 to 3. And death and sin and law show up on repeat all throughout human history. Especially in the story of Israel. Death, sin, and the law. So in the Garden of Eden, a law was given. And sin, breaking that law, would lead to death. Don't eat from the fruit. You eat from it. You break the law. You sin. You will die. Sin feeds off law. The law is what gives sin, or law-breaking. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is law-breaking. The law gives sin its power. The power of sin is the law, says Paul. Paul says things similar to this in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 5 and chapter 7 of that great letter. In Romans 7, Paul writes this. He says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting was. Ooh, I really want that. My neighbor has it, so I'm going to kill him to get it, right? I, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But, says Paul in verse 8 of Romans 7, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, now I know it's wrong, produced in me all kinds of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So the law gives sin a twisted kind of power by defining it just like light defines darkness as the absence of light. Or heat defines cold as the absence of heat. So the law that is right defines what is wrong. And give what is wrong a type of power it did not have before it was defined. Right? Try this out with kids. They might not have thought to break a rule, but you make the rule and now they think, hmm, I could do that. I could touch that. I could go there. It wasn't in their minds before. What gave that power? The law you made. Does that make your law bad? No. The law could have been good and loving and intended to protect them. But as soon as you say, um, there's this thing you could do, and I don't want it to, you to do it. Right? Because it's not good for you. It's not going to help you. It's going to hurt you in the end. Well, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment and produces sin. And the sting of death, says Paul, is sin. Which is interesting. You would think it would be the other way around. You sin and then you're stung by the consequence of sin. You're stung by death. And that's actually how it happened in the Garden of Eden. But according, so in other words, they sin, sinned and death came. But now we are all, according to Paul's thinking, born in a state of spiritual deadness towards our creator. Cut off from God. And the sting, the ongoing pain of this condition of deadness towards the God of life is that we sin and we sin and we sin. 
on repeat, and it hurts us, and it stings. It makes us miserable. The sting of being spiritually dead towards God, the sting, the, the, the burn of this deadness towards our Creator is sin. And more sin. And more sin and misery. But Christ frees us from this. Jesus kept the law perfectly. He defeated death completely. And he pays for our sins by his life and his sacrifice. And he gives us victory over sin and over death and over law forever. And so, given all these things, Paul launches into one final verse, verse 58, which is his final call to live life in light of everything he's been saying. Not just in this section of chapter 15, but in the whole chapter. The final call is live a life controlled by the hope of resurrection. So let's look at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know... That your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, the first thing he says is stand firm. That language of stand firm, it reaches all the way back across the whole of chapter 15. Back to the very first two verses that he wrote at the beginning of chapter 15. Stand firm, he says, because the resurrection is real. And because we will inherit the new creation. Stand firm because death will be defeated. And because Jesus is reigning now. And because the apostles really aren't lying about Jesus. And stand firm, therefore, because of everything he said in verse 15. Or chapter 15, he's saying, now therefore, because of all the things I told you about the resurrection. Stand firm. 58 is the conclusion to it all. And it, like I said, recaps what he said in verses 1 to 2. There Paul wrote, now brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 2. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. Hear the language of stand? Stand in verse 1, stand in verse 58. And everything in between is the reasons that you should stand in this gospel. Why? Because, verse... Two, this gospel saves you if you hold firmly. Hear the word firm, stand firm, let nothing move you. Same language. Stand firm in verse 2. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. In our day and age, someone who stands firm to a spiritual claim might be named or labeled close-minded. Narrow-minded, not open to other views, living in a spiritual straitjacket. But Paul isn't worried about those types of charges. If everything around you is passing away, you want to stand on firm ground. I mean, imagine a mudslide coming or an avalanche. You want to get to the high ground, the firm ground, a place where you can stand. This world is passing away. People are dying. You want to stand firm, run to the resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. Run to the hope. 
Stand firm, let nothing move you. Don't be moved by false teaching saying that dead people don't rise from their graves. Don't be moved by false teaching saying Jesus didn't really rise. Jesus didn't really pay for your sins. And what's so bad about sins anyway? Don't be moved by that constant bombardment to treat what we do with these bodies of flesh and blood as matters of personal preference. It's your body, your choice. No, Jesus made your body, every single atom in it. He is the Lord over these bodies of flesh and blood. He cares what we do with them, and he will raise them one day. Yeah. On that day, he will defeat death. He will appear. So what we do with these bodies matters because they're his. So stand firm and don't be moved. Verse 58, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. This work of the Lord is not just the stuff we might consider the more explicitly spiritual stuff like teaching the Bible or praying or starting a church or being a missionary. Yeah, that's the Lord's work. But all the good works that we have been created in Christ Jesus to do are the Lord's works. Everything that you and I do as Christians, if you're Christian, under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus is the Lord's work. We work for Jesus at our jobs. We parent our children for Jesus. We serve our churches and our friends and our communities. We help others ultimately for Jesus. None of that is in vain. None of it's pointless or meaningless or purposeless. It matters because it's done for the Lord. Imagine, for example, that you work with all your might planting a garden in your yard. You invested time and money and strength you poured yourself out for it, and then it all got blight and rot and was completely wiped out. And you didn't get to enjoy any of the fruit, at least at that moment. Was it all a waste? Was it in vain? Maybe you could look at it that way. But on another level, think about what that work was doing in you, what it was teaching you. Yes? You might not have physical fruit to show for your labors, but only God knows completely what the experience shaped in your mind and in your heart and what was created in you in that process that you learned endurance, you built strength. And that is what will endure into eternity. Now that's just a physical illustration of frustration over a, you know, I did that all in vain? But think about more significant things that we spend our time doing, the work we spend pouring our lives out for other people as we work for Jesus, even children. Is it a waste when others seem to throw out our instruction to squander the resources that we gave them to walk away? Is it a waste? Was it pointless? verse would say no the end of the story has not been told we don't know what God is doing but he's always doing something he's always at work your labor for him is never in vain so a few thoughts as we close direct applications to our lives I want to ask you um, First, where 
Where do you need to stand firm in your life? Where might God be calling you right now? The Holy Spirit nudging you. Move to the high ground. Stand firm. Where do you feel you might be slipping? And what is moving you? Is it a relationship with someone that is causing your heart to start to doubt the rule and reign of Jesus? Is it a circle of friends who are slowly chipping away like waves of the ocean hitting at a castle's walls? Chipping away at what you once thought to be true about the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's something you've been watching or reading that's eating away at your grasp of the spiritual realities of life and of death, of good and evil, of heaven and the reality of hell. What is eroding your hope in the resurrection, in your future inheritance? Is there something in your life in particular? Or maybe it's just you are like me and sometimes we're just so crazy busy our brains are always turned on and we don't have time to rest in front of the Bible and soak in the truths that God has called us to stand on. We have a firm gospel to stand on. Jesus is risen. He really dealt with your sin. He, you don't have to pay for the sins that Jesus paid for. He's coming again. He really will make all things new. Our present suffering is not the end of our story. This world is really not all there is. Sin will not have the final word. Death will not have the last laugh. Stand on this. We can stand firm. Don't let anything move you from that. Don't drift. Preach the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15 to yourself when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed. Preach it. Christ is risen. That is the high ground that we can run to. It's the anchor for everything we believe. It's why I'm standing here today. Because I believe Jesus is alive. Bodily, that he rose. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. This is Paul's conclusion to the whole chapter, remember. That's why we're really landing here. And I want to ask you, it says, Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Where might God be asking you right now to give yourself more fully to working for him? Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Not holding back anything. Give yourself to the Lord. All of you to be used for what he asks of you. Total surrender. And so I ask, what might God be asking of you? I can't tell you what God might be calling you towards. I don't know your heart, but I've been asking myself this question. Is there someone he wants you to have over into your home to encourage? Is there someone God is asking you to come alongside going into the fall to disciple? I want to meet and pray with you on a regular basis. I want to give myself to helping you grow in your faith and be encouraged by you as well. Maybe God is calling you to be more generous with your time or with your resources, pouring out what he has given you that others might have life. What does giving yourself more fully to the Lord look like? Ask him. 
And maybe you have been giving yourself fully to the Lord, pouring yourself out. And you might be wondering, what do I have to show for it? So Paul says next. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing is in vain. When something is in vain, it means it's wasted. Like, imagine I studied for hours for a test, only to find out I studied the wrong material for the wrong test. And it was material I'll probably never use again in my life, right? I mean, in a sense, your study's in vain. You're probably going to fail the real test. But when we labor for the Lord... It is never in vain, even if we don't see any results for the fruit of our labors, at least very little. Maybe we've brought countless people with us to church, and they just walk away, or at least they've seemed to. And we've told so many people about the Lord, we've lost count, and their hearts remain hard to Christ. This is not in vain. It doesn't take away the fact that the gospel is good news, that Jesus is alive, that he did defeat death, that it's really real. The seeds were sown. God is the Lord of the harvest. He's the one responsible for growth. He will reward faithfulness. And he will reward it with more strength, with more of himself, with more of his closeness, and we will inherit the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts by verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's conclusion to everything. Stand firm. God, I pray that we as a church would stand firm. That you would help us to be unmoved by anything. Let nothing move you. Lord, help us to be stirred by your Holy Spirit, to give ourselves more fully to working for you. In our jobs, maybe we'd be working for you, working to represent you, to bring a taste of what it would look like if Jesus worked there into our work environment. Help us give ourselves fully to it. And I pray that we would know, that we would know at the core of our souls that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus is for us. And Jesus will raise us. And Jesus will reward us. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.